0: AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, Brett Johnson, with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And today we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota reformer, Patrick Coolican, as we are going to be chatting about some of the stories they worked on as well as the fact that, did you know, this is the four-year anniversary of the Minnesota Reformer. They've been around four years doing all the great reporting here in Minnesota politics. We'll be chatting a little bit about that as well and what to look forward to in the future and some of the favorite stories that uh, they've been covering over the years over at the Minnesota Reformer. But before we get to all of that, let's welcome in Patrick Hulican back to the show. Hey, thanks so much for coming back on. Always a pleasure absolutely so before we dive into some of the minnesota stories i gotta first off get your thoughts on what happened in the iowa caucuses last night any big surprises on your end with donald trump getting a little over 50 percent of the vote and running very strong in rural iowa counties which i guess is kind of similar to minnesota where we have lots of very rural obviously midwestern counties so really any big surprise that trump ran so strongly last night in iowa
1: i don't think so i think uh, everyone uh thought that he would uh, have a strong showing, uh, and he did. I think that's a, a big margin for the Iowa caucus uh, compared to previous uh, uh, contests. Uh, I, I think it's worth noting, though, that you know, to only get 51% when he's running essentially as the incumbent, uh, I think that's, that shows uh, some weakness as well as the fact that uh, the caucus represents just a small uh, portion of the Iowa electorate. Um, or even the Republican electorate in Iowa. Um, you could blame a little bit on the weather, but Iowans are uh, like Minnesotans are famously tough um, uh, about getting out on a caucus night, no matter the weather in the middle of winter. So, so um, I think that it's a strong showing for him. It's especially weak showing uh, for Nikki Haley. Uh, I think she needed to uh, to come in second to be the, the not Trump. Uh, although I think in the end, all that uh, doesn't really matter because he's, he's going to be the nominee. It's just a question of whether or not he can maintain his health. Um, But uh, insofar as there was some kind of a shot for somebody else, uh, Nikki Haley uh, needed to finish, I think, uh, better than she did. So uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, But certainly it looks like uh, Donald Trump um, will be the nominee at this point.
0: Well, let's move along now and talk about some of our local Minnesota political stories that you guys have been working on. And I want to start off with something that, well, Dina Winter had a chance to write about because she saw the new documentary that Liz Collin, former WCCO and now with Alpha News, I believe journalist, recently put out titled The Fall of Minneapolis. And this is a video that I believe has a ton of views on YouTube, something like over 5 million. So lots of people in that. Uh, kind of right-wing political sphere are definitely checking this thing out. So Dina Winter decided to take a look and see what this whole documentary is all about. And, well, to really no one's surprise, there are, well, at best, a lot of misleading claims that are made in this documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis, which has to do with the aftermath of the uh, Derek Chauvin trial, and then also what happened after with the protests and so forth. So you get the idea of what the documentary is largely about. So there were a lot of, well, as I said, I guess at best, Patrick, misleading claims. But let's walk through some of these, because what were some that jumped out at you? Because there were lots to me as I read through Dina's column, whether it was the fact that they tried to say, well, George Floyd has always been on drugs. He's had problems with these before and therefore should be almost exonerated. What were some of the other highlights or some of the other claims that were made in this documentary that were largely debunked by Dina in her reporting?
1: I I think the key point here is that, the documentary makes uh, the claim um, in, in part just to inflate its own value um, that there's these all that it has all these bombshell uh, uh, re- bombshell facts that were somehow covered up or uh, never come to light. Um, and the reality is that all she's doing, at least in the part of the documentary regarding Derek Chobin's uh, guilt or innocence, is she's just kind of rehashing what his defense was at trial. I mean, this is not. None of this is uh, is particularly new, um, and in fact, the jurors are heard a lot of this evidence, and it really just comes down to whether or not uh, whether or not Chauvin, uh, or excuse me, whether or not George Floyd uh, died because of his pre-existing health problems uh, and/or his drug use, um, or did he die uh, because he was suffocated um, by that uh, by a, uh, what's what's called a positional asphyxiation. Uh, which was uh, due to the uh, force used by Derek chauvin uh, when he was kneeling on his on his neck for nine minutes and um, you know this I, to me the the, the key uh, uh, test uh, testimony in the trial uh, was by a guy named dr. Tobin um, he's a Chicago he's, he's written with with one medical journal called the, the Bible of um, Pulmonary um, health and you uh, and he explained to the jury and I think to the broader public or those of us who were paying attention. Um, and Dean happened to be in the courtroom that day when he, uh, when, when Martin Tobin testified, um, that, uh, the, the fact that Floyd was handcuffed face down on the pavement and that his left knee, that Chauvin's left knee was, was putting pressure in that neck area. And, you know, he, and, and Tobin in the courtroom, he points out these moments, these key moments, including at one point, Floyd's, uh, his leg jerked backwards, which was an involuntary reaction, um, because he had a low level of oxygen going to the brain. That's what Tobin testified. And then he, and then Tobin sort of points out in the video that moment when, uh, when he dies and, um, and it's due to suffocation. And, um, so that was just a, a key point for me was that, uh, we've heard all this before and, um, we've heard expert testimony on how, uh, Floyd, uh, Floyd's death was in fact a homicide. Um, and, and so that was a, a big one for me. Um, you know, and then there's, uh, regarding the, the, there's a big part of the film is, is what happened after the, the aftermath. And, um, you know, uh, I don't think there's any disagreement that the, the, the city, the state uh, handled badly the, the aftermath and allowed uh, what had been demonstrations to turn into rioting and all the destruction of uh, buildings and uh, all the mayhem. Um, Some of it was caused by just for lack of a better word, hooligans. Um, But in any case, I don't think anybody's arguing that there, there was a, there weren't serious uh, mistakes made by a state and, and local officials with regards to the aftermath. Um, but there's these claims that somehow uh, they did, you know, they, they allowed the rioting to take place because it served some political end. And it's like, I have no idea where that, that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, ri- the rioting, the burning of buildings, this is not a good story for for Mayor Fry or for, for Governor Tim Walls. Um, and, and the idea that, that police officers were standing down. Well, I mean, there's, we have lots of people who have, um, permanent, permanent scars, including blindness and in, in one eye, because they were shot by rubber bullets. Uh, one of our own reporters was shot by a rubber bullet. Um, so, you know, that just doesn't, uh, it's just not true that they were standing down or ordered to stand down. Um, so this documentary has, uh, all kinds of, uh, factually misleading um, assertions and, and Dina did a great job of, of sitting down and God love her watching it over a weekend. And, and, and I think I would just want to point out also that, that Dina was in that, which she, she covered the trial every single day. And I mean, and she was reporting on that, on the trial leading up to it. She was there every day covering it for, for both the Wall Street Journal and the reformer. Um, She covered, uh, you know, as well as uh, some of what some of the aftermath uh, of the uh, of the murder. Uh, um, And so there's nobody, uh, I don't think, on Earth that I'd want more to be doing a a story about this documentary than Dean. And I'm, I'm so glad that she
0: did. Yeah, I'm glad she walked. She was able to watch that as well and break down some of these claims because uh, I'll admit I have not watched the documentary myself and I'm probably not going to be planning on doing that anytime soon. But it just seems to me that, as he said, it kind of follows the whole Derek Chauvin defense when they're at least on that part of the documentary before they get into the protests that happened after, but... It seems like a lot of this is, uh, a lot of the claims that Liz Collin makes in this documentary are kind of kernels of truth that, well, kind of fall apart from there. Like, for instance, you look at these claims that she makes about the Hennepin County Medical Examiner, examiner, where he said, well, asphyxia was not part of the cause of death. Well, that's a little bit of a misleading claim, and I think if someone... If someone generally out there in the public has not really been following this trial or the aftermath of what happened with the m- murder of George Floyd following that news story very closely, I could see how it would be easy to watch this documentary and say, well, wait, why isn't the media covering these types of stories and so on and so on, where you can take these kernels of truth and then kind of have them fall apart from there almost.
1: Yeah, it's just another example of how, uh, you know, people are, the Internet is broken, American society The people are are not media uh, savvy um, and they're not good media consumers. And so they they see something um, that would seem to, uh, you know, make what would seem to be good points about uh, Floyd's death and uh, given his drug use and his prior uh, health issues um, and, and not knowing because they didn't pay that much attention to the trial that all of this was aired in open court and um, and a lot of it was uh, refuted and uh, it certainly and, and the jury uh, made their decision uh, the the appeals have all failed um, so uh, the, the the idea that this is uh, some sort of bombshell um, work of journalism is just uh, it's just
0: not. And important to point out as well, uh, keep in mind that Dina Winter, who wrote the column, was in the trial, was able to watch the trial as well. As we have mentioned a few times during our interview, she was reporting on it as well, so she's very familiar of what happened with this thing. And I think as she even wrote in the column, she didn't recall seeing Liz Collin ever attending the trial or doing much reporting on that either. So interesting uh, note about that as well want to move on to another story that you guys are working on over at the Minnesota Reformer and that has to do with the FBI investigating well several cheating allegations that plagued the DFL endorsement process for city council races in Minneapolis. If you might remember the DFL endorsement conventions for two Minneapolis wards ended up getting canceled last year because of allegations of phony delegates and in fact one convention I believe over in Ward 10 uh, descend it into a brawl, which we talked a little bit about last year. So the FBI is investigating what's been happening with this whole endorsement process. So I guess my question to you is, why is the FBI interested in something that's a very local issue? Because oftentimes you think of the FBI and you think about something that happens across states or at the national level, not so much at the local level with the political party endorsing candidates. So do we know exactly what the df or excuse me what the fbi is looking for in this case or who they're interviewing who they're talking to why and so forth
1: well dina talked to a couple of sources uh who uh, asked to remain anonymous and in one case uh the source said that asked the, the source said that the fbi specifically asked them not to talk to the media uh the person did so talk to us anyway um and uh, but anyway, these both these folks say they were interviewed by the FBI about the uh, irregular irregularities. Uh, I think we used the word chicanery at uh, some of the DFL um, uh, endorsing conventions where uh, it looks like um, based on our, our reporting that some of the uh, delegates that were the candidates were claiming were were phony. Um and uh and, and again, yeah, we you and I talked about the, the problems that were uh that a few of these conventions had last year. Uh and so the yeah, the, the question I had, I, I think similar to what your your question is like, well, what is the what is the crime here? Um you know, not to say that uh some tomfoolery at a at a DFL convention uh is okay, but I also think it's a little bit far for the course. But um, lawyers that we talked to, election lawyers, they seem to think they, the FBI might be looking at possible violations of the Voting Rights Act um, and, um, and potentially the fraud, essentially. And, and it is indeed, um, if they were able to prove it, it, it would seem to be fraudulent, uh, the far, fraudulent gathering of, of delegates. Um, but at this point, we don't don't know a whole lot um, because obviously the Feds uh, don't talk much. Um, we know that there was a previous uh, grand jury around uh, voting uh, fraud, which is very different than, than this situation. Um, and there was a perjury uh, conviction that they attained obtained uh, last year. Or excuse me, two years ago. Um, but Uh, this would seem to be a different situation um, because it's not actual election fraud per se. It didn't happen on election day or a primary day. Uh, So we'll just have to, uh, I think, wait and see um, to see uh, what direction the feds are moving in uh, uh, on this situation.
0: Well, the idea of voter lists strikes me as being interesting, too, because what's key when you have these types of endorsement conventions, especially in large cities where typically it's only one party that usually ends up winning the Democratic Party, is that these voter lists are very key that the endorsed candidate gets because you get, well, a list of voters and their contacts, which can be very key towards campaigning in the general election. But FBI agents say this is ripe for fraud, so... I'm kind of curious about this, too. Or would they be concerned about someone possibly using these voter lists for other purposes, maybe selling them or something like that? Because I, I could see how that would be a key case where if you're all of a sudden having all these names accessible by someone and used for, well, not good purposes, that could certainly draw the attention as well of the feds.
1: Good. Uh, my, the way I read this was that uh, if you fraudulently, you would be fraudulently obtaining the voter list Um, and that would be the crime, um, which would certainly be interesting. I don't, you know, I don't think we've seen that necessarily, but I, I wonder if the feds having done the, the grand jury over, uh, actual voter fraud, um, they just think that the, uh, the DFL, uh, that there's some stuff going on, um, in the, the, in the city with respect to voting. Um, and they're kind of going, looking far and wide for it.
0: Well, one last thing to bring up for you before we wrap things up, and that has to do with the fact that we are at the four-year anniversary of the Minnesota Reformer. Hard to believe how fast time flies, uh, going back to January 2020 when Uh, The Reformer first came out, so during these first four years, any specific stories you'd like to highlight, stories you'd like to talk about, or encourage people to continue supporting the Minnesota Reformer, because man, it feels like it was just yesterday, it was only four years ago in 2020.
1: Yeah, it's been a really fun uh, and and, uh, I think productive uh, four years, and I owe uh, all of it to um, both the really talented staff who work so hard um, and then also our, our growing community of supporters without uh, whom we couldn't couldn't do the work but um, you know I, I what, what we had sought to do uh, was to to be a, a news outlet that uh, came at stories with a bit of a different perspective and then also uh, we were going to really aggressively chase uh, scoops. And, you know, I think if you look at uh, that four-year history, uh, I hope that we've been able to do that. Um, and just, you know, my, some of my favorite examples, I mean, certainly Dean is reporting on Minneapolis Police Department, but also uh, Max and, and a, a guy named Tony Webster wrote a, a big story for us called uh, The Bad Cops. And it was about the, uh, the discipline problems in the Minneapolis Police Department and, the, and their failure to deal with them. Um, certainly, Dean is reporting on uh, 3M and chemical contamination in the Eastern Metro, uh, and uh, the list goes on of stories I think that um, that I'm proud of and uh, I think our staff ought to be proud of. And so I just hope that uh, listeners will continue to uh, check us out.
0: I like what you just said, too, about approaching scoops and making sure you're going after those because oftentimes in today's media environment, especially when you're talking about local print or even online publications, well, oftentimes those types of publications are owned by a hedge fund, where if you want to go do that type of reporting, well, we quite don't have the funds to be able to do that, or it's just easier to pull something from the wire service where where you guys are out there doing the actual legwork of uh, doing journalism, which is very, very key in today's media environment when so many different options Outlets are being gobbled up by hedge fund companies and largely, well, not able to do a lot of reporting.
1: Yeah, we're truly independent. Nobody's telling us uh, what we should be reporting. Uh, and so we're just going to uh, follow what we think are uh, interesting stories um, very often about uh, the influence of, of rich and powerful people and, and how it impacts uh,
0: regular people. Well, make sure you go and continue supporting the Minnesota Reformer. Again, minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. We have been speaking with the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, Patrick Kulikan, with his usual Tuesday visit. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950.